The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. It's the entire book of that, uh, that book of the Bible. And so we're going to continue our reading with Ruth chapter 3. Uh, so we're going to be out of the NIV today. Uh, so if you want to look on your phones or certainly up on the screen, I invite you to do so. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whom, whose woman you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am his servant, Ruth, she said. Spread out the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. The kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all you ask. All the people of my town have known that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of your family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if not... If he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told him everything Boaz had said and her at, and added, had told her and added, he gave me six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you. We ask for you to speak. Uh, we ask that as we encounter Ruth and the story and how you redeemed her. Uh, Lord, we see our own story reflected in that and understand a little bit more of what we're called to do as your children. We say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. I may have a story that my wife hasn't heard yet today. This is like a treat. Um, I was about 21, 22 years old, and my church wanted to do a small group youth retreat. And I knew an area up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan where my family was from that had awesome hiking and swimming and all kinds of cool stuff. And so I said, hey, why don't we go up to my grandma's house? I'll show you around. This is my youth pastor. And I'll show you kind of what's going on. We can kind of plan out what the trip's going to be. And my grandma said, absolutely, I would love to host you. We got up there. And uh, in early conversations, she said, hey, Josh, there is this friend of mine who has a 21-year-old granddaughter. And she's just, in my grandma's words, darling. And I think you should talk to her. I think you guys would just really hit it off. And I said, yeah, yeah. And we all laughed about it. And we went on with the weekend. And my grandma kept kind of seeding this, hey, I have this friend who has this granddaughter. And we're just keep on laughing about it and whatever else. Well, last night of the trip, 
we want to take grandma out for dinner to say thank you for uh, hosting us. And she's like, yeah, absolutely, let's go. But before we go, you have to call my friend's granddaughter. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, grandma, no, no. And she sits down and she says, we're not leaving until you call this girl. And my grandma is a very feisty, strong-willed person. I can be a very feisty, strong-willed person. And so this erupts into this very colorful discussion of whether or not I am going to call this girl that I've never met before um, to see if she wants to go, as my grandma says, on just a get-to-know-you day, right? And so we fight, go back and forth. My youth pastor, mind you, is just egging my grandma on like no one's business. He should totally call her. This could be his one true love. On and on and on it goes. Finally, I grab the phone. I storm off, and I give this girl a call, and it goes to voicemail. And I'm sitting there smug as a bug, and I put the phone down. I go back to Grandma. I'm like, went to voicemail. She's not home. Apparently, it's not meant to be. Let's go to dinner. And Grandma says, oh, I knew she wasn't going to be home. Which I'm like, then why did you have to call? She said, well, she might have been home. But she's at her niece's birthday party. You have to call her niece's house. And no, right? And so another explosion. Youth pastors egging on my grandma. Grandma's sitting down. We're not going anywhere until you call this girl. Fine, grab the phone, storm off, call. Well, who answers but the five-year-old niece whose birthday it is? And she says, who is this? And I'm like, this is Josh. I'm looking for so-and-so. And she starts screaming, it's the boy, it's the boy, it's the boy. So I can just picture this little five-year-old girl running around the house, 40, 50 people at this birthday party. It's the boy. So gets the phone to this girl that I'm supposed to talk to. And I literally just start off with, this is the most awkward phone call of my life. Uh, and she's like, yeah, mine too. And I'm like, I am sure that you are an absolutely amazing person and wonderful and beautiful. I just don't see this working. We live like 400 miles away. And she's like, yeah, I agree. And thus ended the very short relationship of Josh and this darling other granddaughter. Now, I bring that up, not just because it's a cute story, but because in a real way, in Ruth today, we're going to find a mother who's in that same vein, right? We all have those family members who are always trying to set folks up, and sometimes they're better at it than others. But really, what Naomi is trying to do is provide for her daughter. She's trying to look out for her best interest. And so she comes up with a plan. But before we get into that plan, as we've talked about, this series, more than most, we really have to talk about what came first in chapter 1 and chapter 2 to understand what's going to happen in chapter 3 and chapter 4. So what I'm calling this is the, hi, I'm Ruth, and here are some things you need to know or maybe just forgot from chapter 1 and 2. We talked about how in chapter 1, the book starts off by saying, in the time when judges ruled. And the time of Judges was a time where Israel was constantly caught up in this cycle of calamity. Something bad would happen. They would call out to God. God would rescue them. And for a while, they'd be happy. Things would be going well. But then they would trust in other gods. And they kind of had this idea that, well, we're going to have every god under our umbrella. So yeah, we'll, we'll still have Yahweh. But then, you know what? This other god's really good with harvests, and so we'll trust in him for harvest. And this other god is really good for armies, and so we'll trust in this. And so they had this kind of diverse profile of gods they would try to trust in. And yet scripture said that our god is a jealous god, that there is only one true god, and so eventually he would let them get exactly what they wanted. If you want to trust in these fake gods to protect you, you can do that, but they're not going to protect you. And they wouldn't. And famine would strike or an army would strike, or a thousand other ways calamity would come in. And because they weren't connected to God, they didn't have his protection, 
they would cry out for help. And God was faithful and true, and he would again reach down, he would rescue them, and things would be going well for a little bit. And then that cycle would start all over again, of forgetting God, of God giving them what they asked for, of calamity happening, and them calling out. And so they're in this cycle over and over and over again. And the book starts off by saying there was a famine in the land. So they're in that calamity portion. And so Naomi and her husband leave the land of the promise. They leave Israel. They end up over in Moab. And they're doing life there, and they're not supposed to be there. And then they double down on things they're not supposed to do. Their sons take foreign wives. And the problem with that was they had foreign gods. And God had said, no, there's just one true God. It's this theme over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And then calamity strikes them in Moab. All the men die. And we talked about how in old times, all legal status, all property, all investment ran through the husband. And so when the husbands die... The mom and her two daughters, they have no legal recourse. They have no standing. They have no community. It starts off pretty bad. But they end up returning to the promised land where God had said, I will protect you here. I will provide for you here. And so Naomi and Ruth end up going back to Israel. And then in chapter 2, we start to see how God provides daily bread for Naomi and Ruth. And Ruth ends up in the field of a good man who protects her and helps provide for her. And so they're getting day to day, they're getting by. But what we find is that there is a difference between surviving and having a home, right? Verse 1 says, I must find you a home, this is Naomi speaking, where you will be well provided for. And it really starts off this idea that surviving is different than belonging, Right? We can eat, we can have something over our head, but that is different than being at home. When you think about what home is, there is a feeling that gets connected with that, but there's also a community that gets connected with that. It means people who say, yes, you're a part of what I'm up to. You're a part of my family. You belong here. At this point in the story, Naomi and Ruth, they don't belong anywhere. They're just kind of there. And so Naomi gets it in her head. Hey, let's start playing matchmaker. All right? She starts playing the role of my grandma in this story. And the way she plays matchmaker, quite frankly, is kind of scandalous. All right? So now Boaz, whose woman you have been worked for, again, this is Naomi, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. This is important. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go, uncover his feet, lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Right? This is Naomi's grand advice. Right? All right. Get dolled up. Put on your best dress. Get looking fly. Then wait until this guy has got a good buzz going. Right? And then go... Sneak up, crawl into his bed, wait for him to wake up, and then just see what happens, right? Youth, this is not good advice, right? And this is really important in the Bible because sometimes we treat the Bible like it's an instruction manual. And we get it in our heads, you know what, the Bible is here to tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do. 
One of my favorite examples of this is the parable of a man who's having a really rough day and just lots of chaos in his life, lots of unanswered questions, and he's trying to figure out what God wants for him. And so he thinks, you know what, I'm going to open the Bible. I'm just going to open up to a page. I'm going to say, God, I need you to tell me what to do. And he opens it up. He slams his finger down, and he ends up at Matthew 27, 5. And his finger says, and Judas went and hung himself. And he's like, oh, Oh, I'm not sure if that's the advice that I was looking for, God. Let me, let, me, let me rephrase that. I really need to know what you want me to do, and I believe what you want me to do is in this book. And so he shuts the Bible, he opens it back up again, he slams his finger down, and he ends up in Luke 10. And it says, and Jesus says, and surely I have told you what to do. Go and do likewise. And he's like, no, God, I don't think this is the right answer. And so he prays again, and he shuts his Bible, and he opens it up. And he ends up in John 13. And Jesus says, what you must do, do it quickly, right? This idea that the Bible is this magic book, this magic uh, manual that will always tell us exactly what the next right move is. But the truth of the matter is that no, the Bible isn't primarily an instruction manual. The Bible is primarily God's story of why he created the earth, what went wrong, and how far God is willing to go to make it right again. The entire narrative of Scripture is God's love story to the world. It's our family history. It's how our Father has worked throughout generations and throughout centuries. Now, mind you, the Bible, at times, does tell us what to do. There are parts of the story where Jesus is telling his followers or where Yahweh is telling his Old Testament people, this is what it means to be a part of my community, right? And he says things like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. He gives us the Ten Commandments. He tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And truly, those are things that God wants us to do. It's how we're meant to live. But if we turn the entire Bible into, all right, what am I supposed to do right now? What ends up happening is the Bible becomes all about us becomes all about me. And whenever I make anything all about me, things end really poorly. Right? That's the heart of sin. This idea that the whole story is about what God is doing for me. When in reality, it's no, the whole story is what God is doing. Right? And so we see that in the story of Naomi, right? Naomi does not give great advice. Right? This is not how you should go and try to win the affections of someone. Wait until they're drunk, then go crawl in their bed. That's not a good idea. And yet, what we see is that God works in spite of Naomi's bad advice. The story goes on and it says, although it is true, and this is Boaz speaking, that I am a guardian redeemer to our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So this concept of a guardian redeemer was part of the society God had set up. Right? He realized that in culture, and this was not just within Jewish culture, this is across the world, that women did not have the same rights as men. And so he created a system, he created a safeguard. So if the husband were to die, there was a way to protect these families, to protect these women, and it was called the concept of a guardian redeemer. And we see this in Deuteronomy. And God tells his people, if, a, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, 
His widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Now, at first glance, you're like, wow, that's kind of like bad for the wife. But in reality, if you are a widow who has had relations, you were no longer pure. You were no longer good enough to marry someone. And so God sets up a system where if this uh, woman becomes a widow and she doesn't have family to protect her, that there was a system set up where one of the brothers, a close family member, would marry her. And then when they had children, the first child would actually go through the dead brother's family. And so all the land that they had, all the legal status that they had, all the community place that they had would be maintained. And that was called a guardian redeemer. And I didn't include this, but it's actually funny. If you read past uh, verse 7, it talks about what happens if the brother decides, I don't want to do this. The widow is allowed to bring in the entire village, all the elders. She takes off her sandal, spits in his face, and says, this guy's a jerk. And the whole community gets to watch it happen. It's like Facebook blast on steroids. Imagine all of Leander coming together, right, and being like, this guy is not doing what he's supposed to be because he's a jerk. That's, what, that's how far, that's how shameful it was to not fulfill one's duty, right? And Boaz is in their family, right? It's not like a blood relation as far as weird incest stuff. It's just that one of the brothers who had died was related to Boaz. And what we see is Boaz, as Naomi puts it at the end of the chapter, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. We talked about how the story of Scripture is God's story. And it's ultimately leading up to a climax in the person of Jesus. How far would God go to redeem his people? Well, as Naomi put it, wait, find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled. In good storytelling, you have something called foreshadowing. And foreshadowing means that you start to see seeds of where the story is ultimately going earlier on. You see little shadows of the ultimate big picture. And in the Old Testament, you have a bunch of foreshadowed stories of who Jesus is going to be. And so this concept of a guardian redeemer, someone who would take a person out of their broken, hurtful state and bring them back into community, give them back a home, redeem them. What we see in the story of Boaz and Ruth is how far he will go, this urgency to bring back right relationship. And we see that urgency in Christ. How far will God go to have a relationship with us? Well, he'll die. He will incarnate himself in Christ. He will put on flesh. He will do life with people. The God of the universe, the God who Scripture says made the world, shows up. He does life with his people. But he realizes that sin needs a sacrifice. And he says, then I'll do that too. And he dies for all the brokenness, all the hurt, all the pain. The sin inside of us and the sin in the world, he takes it all on himself. And he says, I will not, settle, I will not rest until this matter is settled. I will redeem my people. 
And we see that in the story of Ruth and Boaz. But this story is even deeper than that because Boaz's history, his own family tree, has his own level of brokenness. We read about his genealogy in Matthew. Salman was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab is interesting. She is not your typical church lady. She's not the one who was setting up the communion before church. She didn't grow up in the right family. No, Rahab was a foreigner. Rahab was a prostitute. And when God was giving his people Israel, there was a city called Jericho. Big walls. Sunday school, we talk about how the walls come down. We typically don't tell Rahab's story, though. Before they go into Jericho, they send spies in to kind of look at the lay of the land. And they find that all the people of Jericho have heard about the God of Israel. They know about this God who actually protects his people, who actually redeems his people. And they're scared. And they find out spies are in their city. And the spies end up in the house of Rahab, the prostitute. And Rahab looks at these spies and she says, we've heard about your God. My family wants to be a part of your community. My family wants to find a home in Israel. I'll protect you now from my people if when your people come, you'll protect me. And they make this deal and they say, sounds good. When we come, when the walls come crumbling down, you will be safe. And Rahab's family ends up marrying into Boaz's family. And so Boaz's grandmother was a foreigner, a former prostitute, a former non-God worshiper who God had redeemed, who God had brought into community, who had given her a home. Boaz's family wasn't perfect. And yet God worked. And because of that, he was able to pay that home forward, that community forward. Because he was broken, because his family was broken, he was able to have a heart for those whose families were broken. Because at the end of the story, everyone in this room comes from a messy home. Right? Somehow, some way, all of our families at times put the fun and dysfunctional, or the not so fun and dysfunctional. And yet we have a God who comes in and redeems us, who gives us a church family, who gives us community, who will go to any length to have a relationship with us. And then, as Jesus told his disciples, if you have any fellowship with me, make my joy complete by loving one another. He says, the world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Not if you show up at church every Sunday. Not if you know every Bible verse. Not if you can put your life together for two hours on a Sunday morning so everyone thinks you're okay. No, he says, if you love one another, the world will know you are my disciples. He says, look, I know you come from a messy background, and yet I will go to any length to have a relationship with you. So he says, pay that love forward. Pay that joy forward. Pay that community forward and welcome people into your home. The whole practicing hospitality, bringing people in and saying, we're glad you're here. You're not alone. You have a place. You don't have to just survive. 
We want you to belong. That's what the church is about. That's where God is calling us into. And we get to do it because we come from messy backgrounds, because we're not perfect, because we have been redeemed, we get to be ambassadors of redemption. 2 Corinthians says, it's as if God is making his plea to the world through us, that we get to be ministers of reconciliation or ambassadors of reconciliation. We find our story in God's story. We find our redemption in his work. And then we get to take part of his story. We get to be a part of this ministry of reconciliation, these ambassadors of redemption who go into broken houses, broken communities, broken schools, broken workplaces, broken families. And through his power and his love, we get to see him do his work, bringing home here in North Austin and beyond. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you humbled by how far you will go to have a relationship with us. Lord, we all come from a certain level of mess, some of our own making, through our own sin, our own bad choices, some through the making of others, other people's hurt, other people's pain that just ripples into our lives. Lord, we need a God who specializes in redemption. A God who promises to show up. And a God who helps us figure out what the next step is in our own lives as we try to pay forward a little bit of the love and forgiveness you've given us. Lord, we come before you now honest about our mess. But confident that we come before a God who loves us and cares for us. Lord, we say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.